0: And just as kind of we get started here, really curious, how many of you are leaders? How many of you understand you're a leader, whether you're a parent or a grandparent, you're maybe a teacher, you're overseeing a ministry, um, you have a function where you're like an executive president of something like that? How many of you are leaders? I just like to see. Okay, kind of like first service. Most people. You're involved in some form of influence. People are looking to you to make decisions, to give some guidance, to step in. You've got a leadership role. The question is, what kind of leader are you? There are all sorts of leaders in the world, okay? There's all sorts of leaders in our community. But what makes an individual a Christ-centered leader? Well... If you want to know the answer to that question, if you would like to be a Christ-centered leader in your realm, whether you're a parent, grandparent, you're a ministry leader, you're a manager, you're a president, you're a chairman, you're an executive, then you're going to want to pay close attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, because these two verses give us the top two priorities of Christ-centered leaders. Let's take a look at it. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you want to be a Christ-centered leader, if you want to be a Christ-centered believer, you're going to want to underline verse 1 in chapter 2. You and I need to develop patterns of growing in grace. See what Paul said to Timothy? He says, You therefore, my son, please, whatever you do, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. God's grace brings both health and strength. When we talk about grace, we're talking about the blessings, the riches of relationship with Jesus. And oftentimes when we think of grace, we think of it in terms of salvation, okay? We are saved by grace. Absolutely. See, obviously, we are sinners. We miss the mark. We are self-centered by nature, not God-centered. And all of our sin, the most heinous to just uh, kind of going through life without really looking or trusting the Lord, all of that is sin. And Christ literally saves us from the penalty of sin, which is death. He does so by actually becoming the perfect sacrifice, dying, pay the penalty of sin, and resurrecting from the grave. And you and I are saved by grace. We were once spiritually dead. God opened our eyes. He helped us see the reality of our sin and the wonders of the Savior. And we trusted in Jesus. And that's why we say we are saved by grace. We get that. But not only are you saved by grace, you are strengthened by grace. And this is where a lot of Christians actually miss this. They get it. Yeah, I'm saved by grace and I'll sing the song. But you actually live by grace you have to develop patterns of regularly coming to the to Jesus to be strengthened to find your sense of peace and perspective and hope and love and well-being you have to keep coming back to the well which is Christ himself and so that's why he says Timothy i want you to be a christ Centered leader. I want you to experience all that God would have for you. And the only way that ever happens is if verse one is a reality, you learn to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And when he says be strong, that is a present imperative. It means to keep going as a way of life, an ongoing action. It's not like you just kind of go through life and only when you're in a jam do you ever talk with God? No. You learn to go to Jesus as a way of life, to be strengthened. And just some practical ways of doing that. Like you you pray. You actually have a time where you're in the Word, when you read. When you come and you worship the Lord like we just did, or we have the Word open, you receive grace. God brings the strength of relationship with Himself. When you're in good fellowship with another individual, when you're in your small group, or you're in your Bible study, these are all means of receiving grace. That which you cannot earn, it's the gift of relationship with the Lord himself. And for Timothy, he had known God's grace his entire Christian life. I tell you, grace is so awesome. Grace redeems us from our past and redeems our pain. You and I are not defined by our past, but defined by Jesus. That's grace. No matter what has happened to you or what you've done... God's grace covers. He gives strength. He renews you. He, he wants to provide what you cannot earn and cannot do on your own. It's called grace. He rewrites our story, and you know what else he does? He strengthens us for whatever is in front of us. You and I are facing things that we cannot do. I bet your relationships could use a little grace, couldn't they? I bet there's some folks that need love, need forgiveness, need forgiveness need leadership friends if you want to be a Christ centered leader verse 1 you therefore my son my child i want you to be strong keep being strengthened by the grace that is found in christ you receive god's grace he changes your perspective you you are like enjoying god you find joy in your heart you find peace and perspective strength and you know what happens when you receive grace You'll learn to extend it. You're going to find that the most gracious individuals that you know are those who are in a pattern of receiving the grace of Christ. I think you'll also find the converse to be true. If you're not really a very gracious person, more frowns than faith, not a lot of joy, certainly not a lot of kindness, love, or forgiveness extended to others, can I challenge you to go to the well of Jesus? Just go to him. He's going to take you from where you're at to all that you can become in him. He's actually going to conform you to the image of Jesus. And you know how he does that? Through the grace that he provides. That's why he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ. You receive it. Not only does it warm your soul and fuel your life, but it allows you to be gracious in your ministry to others. And if you are a leader, not only do you need this in your own life personally, your people deserve it. Whoever you're leading, they need grace, and God intends to supply that through you. That's one of the means. Okay, now I know March Madness is upon us, and many of you are still feeling pretty good about your teams, right? I know some of you are sad, right? And there's always next year, right? But there if you follow American college basketball, most certainly you've heard of a guy by the name of John Wooden. John Wooden is one of two individuals who is in the Basketball Hall of Fame, both as a player and a coach. We're most familiar with him as Coach John Wooden. And uh, we know that he was with UCLA. While he coached the UCLA Bruins, he brought them to 10 national championships. Seven of them were in a row from 66 to 73. And Coach John Wooden is a legend. There are so many coaches that will actually kind of trace their lineage back to John Wooden. And actually do things that he did. I had a guy who was a former basketball player tell me, like, my coach learned from Wooden. He made us do the things that John Wooden did. Now, okay, so UCLA, man, you had all sorts of extremely powerful all-stars that were on this team. Do you know how he began every single season? He began every singing season by getting all the players... The guys that had been with him for a while and all the brand new all-star, all-American McDonald recruits, he brought them all in, had them sit on the gym floor, had them take their shoes and their socks off, and then he taught them how to put their socks on. Now, the guys that had been with him for a while are like, this is what we do, man. We learn how to put our socks on. The new guy's like, ah, wait a second. I'm at UCLA, and this guy's trying to teach me how to dress myself. That's exactly right. I'm like, why are we doing this, man? Because... If you don't have your socks on correctly, you could develop a blister. If you develop a blister, you're not going to perform to your highest level. you are be like, ow, oh, ow. Oh, oh. And he's like, no, I'm going to teach you how to put your socks on. And so they practiced until they got it right. We don't know how many weeks it took him, but they eventually got it right, where he was satisfied that they could put their socks on. Why did he do that? We see Wooden knew that getting dressed right was critical to playing well. Same is true in life, friends. You and I need to be clothed with the character of Christ. We need grace not only to receive it, but to express it. And that's found in verse 1. If you're going to be a Christ-centered leader, you need to be learning about growing in grace. It becomes a way of life. Let me give you the other priority. The first priority of a Christ-centered leader is that they're growing in grace. The second is that they're building up others in truth. Look at that, verse 2. On the heels of saying, being strong in the grace of Christ Jesus, he says, The things which you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see that in verse 2? And what he's saying there is he's kind of following what he had already established in chapter 1. Remember when he, in chapter 1, he said in verse 8, Paul Paul's writing saying, Timothy, I'm challenging you to suffer for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 8, remember that? And then in verse 13, he says, retain the standard of sound words. You see that? The, the word standard has the idea of an impression, like a, a horse's hoof. When it hits the ground, it leaves an impression. Or like a signet ring, ring when you place it into the wax, it leaves an impression. So he says, retain the standard of sound sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus. You see, God's word is to impress our life. It is to leave its impression. That's why he says retain it, hold it fast this standard of sound words and you do so by verse 13. I don't want you to miss this. So that's why we're reviewing it with faith, believing, Lord, I trust you. Faith is taking God of his word and love. I love you and I love your word which are found in Christ Jesus. Christ gives faith and love. Why? Because he wants his word to shape every aspect of our life. Not that we just know things, but how we live. And so when Paul says in verse 2, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, this is what you pass on. For Timothy, he had been with Paul for the second and third missionary journey. There had been all sorts of private conversations. About how the scriptures came alive, how they fulfilled, they're fulfilled they fulfilled in Christ. How the scriptures point to Jesus and how God uses his word to shape a Christ-centered view of all of life. But Paul had also taught in groups, small groups, with the elders in Miletus. Uh, he actually taught in large group settings. All of what you heard, Paul says, Timothy... The things that you've heard from me, you heard me give the word of God. He says, you heard it in the presence of many witnesses. This is your job. This is what makes a distinguishing mark of a Christ-centered leader. They are building up others in truth. He says, entrust these, these things, the word, the truth that you've heard from me to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Look at verse 2. Isn't that amazing? There are four generations given to us in that one verse. So you got Paul, and you heard it from me. So you got Paul, and you got Timothy. Now, what does Timothy challenge to do? The things that you've heard from me, what are you supposed to do? You are to entrust these to faithful others. Do you see that? So you got a third generation, and what are they to do? Don't miss it. Who will be able to teach others also? There is this successive chain. Paul, I taught you, Timothy. Timothy, you teach these men, these individuals, you're going to teach them. They're going to pass it on. And you cast the vision that the word of God keeps moving forward. Because, friends, that's what Christ-centered leaders do. They build up others in truth. And just think of this. You and I, at this very minute, are standing in a long line, a great chain of men and women, beginning with the apostles of Jesus Christ. And right now, we're building upon that chain. It's been miraculous. It's been almost like, how is it possible that the Word of God is going to reach us here, Fellowship Bible Church, Waco, Texas, in this very day? But it has. And it's not meant just to stay with you. It's meant to go forth. Because that's what a Christ-centered leader does. They entrust, they're entrusted with the truth, and they're bringing it to others. The The word entrust means to deposit something valuable in the care of another person, that for safekeeping. So, for instance, if you ever like watched uh, the president of the United States, and when they're traveling, uh, you'll always see that there is this guy in, in military uniform. He looks pretty stern, and he's carrying this black bag. And you're like, what's in there? Is that is that the president's bowling ball? Or, or is that what's in there? I mean, it looks like it. Or or is that like the food, you know, because, you know, you get hungry, and this guy, you got a really well-trained military guy, and he's bringing snacks for you. Is that what's in that bag? Does anybody know what's in the bag? That's right. That is exactly right. All of the nuclear codes for our nation are in that bag. And that individual that has that bag has been entrusted with it. He has one job. I don't know what your job description is. His is don't lose the bag that's all you need to do you just hold on to it that's all he thinks about he doesn't like you know go into a restaurant like oh sweet i've always wanted to eat it in out burgers i'll just set this here by the door and no you don't do that you just focus on the bag you always keep it because it's been entrusted to you that's what his job is friends that's what god has said about his word the word is what a treasure like he says in chapter 1 verse 14 it's been entrusted to you This word has been trusted to you and you not only keep it and it makes it a depression upon your life in every respect. You are called to pass it on to others. That's your job. And so he says you find people that are what faithful who will be able to teach others also. They've got the desire. They've got some skills. They've got a vision that what I'm learning, I'm passing on to you and you are going to pass on to others. This verse is one of the great verses on discipleship in the Bible. Now, when you say discipleship, that's a word uh, that if you're like a new Christian or you're just investigating in Christianity, you're going to hear in Christian circles. Discipleship. Interesting, though, you're going to find a wide variety of understandings as to what that word would be defined. What is discipleship? Well, I'm sure you've got your definition. I want to give you mine. So discipleship is this. It is the intentional and relational process of maturing Christ-centered believers and mobilizing them for ministry. It's intentional and relational. And what you're doing is you're trying to help people grow and mature as Christ-centered individuals in all of their life. And at the same time, you are mobilizing them for kingdom ministry. For the work of the Lord, however the Lord might want to use them, from gardening to growing small groups, but but that you're mobilizing them for ministry. That is what this verse is saying. And I want you to know that discipleship can take a lot of different forms. It can be formal, like you've got a set curriculum, like maybe a book that you're reading through and you're discussing. You have topics that you want to discuss that are going to help grow and build maturity. There's a formal approach. There's also an informal approach. We're like, whatever life is throwing at you, that becomes our material. We're going to talk about, how does, how does God want us to respond to this situation? How do we take advantage of this opportunity? Really, the best discipleship is probably both. A combination of formal and informal. And I want you to know that I am eternally indebted to people that do this. I am the product of people that understood discipleship is intentional, it's relational, It's meant to bring about maturity in my life, and it's meant to mobilize me for ministry, to teach me, to give me skill, to give me opportunity. And that's what this text says. You keep the truth moving. It shapes all of their lives. There's a guy by the name of Leroy Imes. If you've read books on discipleship, he's pretty famous. There's a book called Discipleship, Great Insights for the Most Experienced Disciple Makers. And in this book, Leroy Imes writes of his experience dealing with visiting a foreign mission field and talking with a veteran missionary. And I just want to read this excerpt. So Leroy Imes said this. He told me, this veteran missionary, told me a story that still haunts me. I can't get it out of my mind. This veteran missionary had gone overseas some 15 years before we met and began the usual programs. About the time he arrived on the field, he met a young man named Johnny who was involved in something quite different. Now, Johnny was a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, but he was going about his ministry in all the wrong ways, according to the book. In contrast to the typical missionary approach, Johnny was spending the bulk of his time meeting with a few young men in that country. The veteran missionary tried to get Johnny straightened out, but the young man just kept on with his different approach. Years passed. And the veteran missionary now had to leave the country of his service due to new visa restrictions. As he sat across the coffee table from me in his home, this is what he told me. Listen to this quote. Leroy, I've got little to show for my time here. Oh, there is a group of people who meet in our assembly, but I wonder what will happen to them when I leave. They are not disciples. They have been faithful in listening to my sermons, but they do not witness. Few of them know how to lead another person to Christ. They know nothing about discipling others. And now that I'm leaving, I can see I've all but wasted my time here. And then I look at what has come out of Johnny's life. One of the men he worked with is now a professor at the university. This man is mightily used of God to reach and train scores of university students. Another is leading a witnessing and discipling team about 40 young men and women. And another is in a nearby city with a group of 35 growing disciples around him. Three of them have gone to other countries as missionaries and are now leading teams who are multiplying disciples. God is blessing their work. I see the contrast between my life and Johnny's, and it is tragic. I was so sure I was right. What he was doing seemed so insignificant. But now I look at the results and they are staggering. Friends, verses 1 and 2. This is what a church must be actively pursuing, not just passively hoping that it just happens. So, what does a disciple making church look like? How do these verses come into play? What does that look like? Well, there's a guy by the name of Howard Hendricks. Uh, he's since, gone on to be with the Lord, but professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, even has a leadership institute named after him. And he presented three questions. He said that these three questions, your answer to these questions will really pretty much kind of determine the type of church that you have. These three questions that I'm going to give to you, they're applicable not only to any church, but any mission organization, any, any organization that you might be leading, including your family. Your answer to these three questions will kind of determine what this is all going to look like. And by the way, if you're going to have a disciple-making church, if 2 Timothy 1 and 2, 2, 1 and 2 is going to be a reality, you've got to have some pretty good answers to these questions. So the first question Hendricks presents is this. What do you desire people to become who are part of your church? What do you desire for them to be guys and gals that have been come to your church for a while? What is the end product? What do you want them to look like? How do you want them to to function. You know, pastors do this like, hey, how many people you got in your church? 3,000. Or this week. I heard a guy tell me they had 46,000. I'm like, what? And, uh, and he says, well, you know, maybe it's 43,000. Like, okay, who's counting? You know, 40, 46, but 43. But 43,000 what? Just people like coming and singing some songs and kind of standing up, sitting down. Is, what What is it that you're trying to create? you got to be able to answer that question. I want you to know like I'm going to give you the answers how fellowship answers these three questions on the question of what kind of person are you trying to develop? It's this we want to see every single person brought to the fullness of maturity in Christ it's not unique with us, it comes directly out of the New Testament to present every person complete, fully mature in Christ that's what we desire because that's what the scripture emphasizes and so like at fellowship we got this logo it's a tree. It's an oak tree. And we use that to just kind of serve as a representation so people get an understanding of of the natural growth process of maturity. So, what happens when you and I come to a place where we're truly trusting Christ, not only for Savior but to be the Lord of our life, we are a new creature in Christ. Literally, Jesus takes up residency in our life through His Holy Spirit. You're new by virtue of the fact that you've been united with Christ. You're like a little sapling. Alright? And And you have just a very small root, and there's just something sticking out of the ground. And what happens is that your roots start developing. And as you and I begin to know God and his word, knowing God, praying, being in his word, as a part of our life, what happens is our roots start to grow and develop. And we get stronger, and there's a residual effect that you start moving forward out of the ground. But everything that takes place out of the ground has first taken place in the ground. And so you begin knowing God and His Word. And if you have a poor diet, like physically, if you're eating a bunch of junk food, or on the converse, you're starving yourself, there are going to be effects to your life, right? You're not going to be so healthy. The same is true spiritually. Your diet, in many respects, is going to determine your growth. And so what we do is we want to know God and His Word, we want the Scriptures to shape our understanding. We want to develop essential theology, like understanding that this word is from God, that God is triune in nature. We understand what it means to salvation and grace by faith. We want to understand that righteousness is a gift. We want to understand, and the God, God shows us in his word, what it means to know Christ, to be the body of Christ, that Jesus is returning, that there is a culmination, that God is in charge no matter what we might think in this life. All of this is how God shapes us. And so we're, as we're knowing God in His Word, what happens is, just like the little tree that you planted in your backyard, that trunk starts to grow. Right? As the tree grows, the trunk starts growing. That trunk is kind of how we refer to character. It's what supports all the branches. It's drawing nutrients from the roots, and your your the trunk is your character. It's it's your convictions. Okay. Uh, it's what you believe about heaven, hell, God, why you're here, where you're going, what you're to do with your money, your purpose in life. All of this, it's, it's character. It's character of your convictions, of what you believe, your attitudes, your values. But at the same time, what happens is you and I really live out what we believe. That's true of every individual. As a growing Christian, God's word now is shaping our life. Christ is empowering us. And what happens is our character conduct Begins to change. We actually begin to behave more like Christ. There is, there is the fruit of the Spirit that God is seeking to manifest in our life. Did you do know that if you're a Christian, God wants you to become loving. You have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. All, all of this coming out of your life It's the fruit that God is bringing about. And furthermore, you handle life differently and you begin to forgive and you use your finances differently because God is shaping your life. Your character is growing. And as your character is growing, then what happens, just like a tree, you start branching out. Like it starts, the character of Christ starts showing up in your relationships. All of a sudden, you begin to treat your spouse differently, your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors, people you work with, people in the church, people you don't know. People on the road, people in the store. Why? Because the character of Christ is shaping your relationships. And you also see it starts shaping how you view what you do during the week. You're not just like, I'm going to a job and I hate my job. No, a big part of what I do is my ministry. God has called me, equipped me. I represent Jesus to these people. I'm going to do my work with excellence. You not only have a ministry like through your job, but you've got a ministry In this church or outside the walls, you understand that God has called me to invest my life in others? And, you you know, we see this everywhere. We see athletes, we see musicians, people in their business careers. They're all developing. Did you know that God intends to develop you? And so we see this picture of the fullness of maturity. Now, I've got a long ways to go on the path of maturity. And I want to thank you for being really patient with me. But let me give you two questions I found to be very helpful in growing maturity. One, the first question is this. Lord, what does maturity in Christ look like in this situation or this relationship? I find it super helpful just to pause. Lord, give me grace to understand what would maturity in Christ look like in this relationship, with how this person's behaving, or in this situation. And then the second question is, Lord, would you give me the grace, desire, and strength to do just that? I can't on my own. What would you do it? I have found these to be very helpful. And after all, maturity matters. God wants to bring you to the fullness of maturity. Every parent wants their child to grow up, right? And so does God with his children. We've got, when you walk out of the, this auditorium, there are these tables set up and there's these brochures. They're called the Maturity Tree. On one piece of paper, we've tried to articulate what does maturity in Christ really look like in very real, tangible, easy to understand ways. In essence, God wants us committed to him, to his truth. He wants us competent. He wants us to have skills. We can study the Bible. We can share our faith. We can actually do ministry. And he wants us commissioned, understanding. We're called to do just like the text says. and trust this with others. Remember what Paul said in Colossians 1, 28 and 29? It's kind of like Paul's restatement of Jesus' great commission. It says, For we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man, with all wisdom, so that we may present every person complete in Christ. And he says, you know what? For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. I want to see every one of you brought to the fullness of maturity in Christ. Friends, that's what we're to do. So the answer to that first question that Hendricks gives, what do you desire people to become in your church? We want every single one of us to brought to the fullness of maturity. Well then the second question Hendricks asks is then, Well, then what kind of church produces this kind of people, these kind of people? So if this is what you want them to become, fully mature in Christ, well, then what kind of church actually produces these kind of people? And I will tell you, it is a church that has a clear path to growing in grace. It's not a mystery. I'm not I'm not really sure what to do. We just hope it happens. No, there is a clear path of growing in grace. Do look at this. 2 Timothy 2.2. You see that? He says, The things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What he's saying there is you want to create fat people. And it's an acronym for faithful. Look right there in the text. I'm not making this up. You want to entrust these to faithful. Do you see that? Men who will be able, there's our A, to teach Others also. Fat, faithful, able, teachable. Teachable has the idea that not only do you desire knowledge, but you can apply this to your life. And so he says, what kind of church produces this kind of people? You've got to have a clear path. There's got to be training and teaching where you're imparting knowledge, skills, and character. You want people to fully mature. So often, we're just like, we just want to make sure you have the right skills. That's true sometimes in the church. It's especially true, like, in the business world, athletics, music. Like, we just want someone really skilled in one particular area. And the problem is, is that they may be highly skilled and highly paid for what they do, but they don't actually have a character that matches it. And it's so disappointing when they blow their life up, okay? And they're so difficult to be around. You're like, man, you're so good at this. Like, you can catch a football with 200 pound people trying to kill you. And yet, your life is a disaster. As Christians, God wants you fully matured in every respect. Not just skills, but in knowledge, knowing Him and your character. You can think of it this way. Your head, your hands, and your heart. All of them are growing together. And that are not about to happen. A church has got to give you training and time. They've got to entrust the ministry to you. They've got to give you opportunities to be involved. So like at Fellowship, if you come to our membership class, we tell you, listen, if you would like to be in the game and not ride the pine, not just sit on the bench, we're your church. We're going to entrust the ministry to you. We're going to try to help equip you and help train you. But you, we want you to be on this path of growing in grace. And then you just give people time to develop. Now, there's a lot of different ways to stimulate this root development. There is like, for instance, your personal time with God where you're just praying and reading and just being still before him. There's large group settings like this, a worship service, where we open up God's word and we have God's word shape our understanding and challenge us and motivate us. There are small groups like Bible studies or regeneration, uh, groups where you get together and you're really discussing how God's truth is involved in your life. And then the very best way is kind of life on life, when you've got one individual helping you take those steps of growth. Now, let me give you the path of growing in grace here at Fellowship. We go back to that tree illustration. The very first, like the sapling stage is begin. At some point, you've got to begin trusting in and knowing Christ. So you begin this relationship of walking with Christ. You're like a little sapling, but God intends for you to grow, right? And so the next step is establish, where you develop your spiritual life both personally and in community where the roots are growing deep you're starting to grow out and you're growing but the third and there's such a this is such a big step and i have to say that not everybody takes it and your growth is stunted that is when you move to the place where you are willing to serve you understand i'm not just saved for just my own personal benefit but god has saved me to serve and you begin to contribute your time and your gifts and your talents to bring others to spiritual maturity. And it's gonna be a step of faith, but it is a glorious one. And praise God, we have got so many people in our church that are taking this step. You serve. But the final, as this trajectory of transformation, is multiply. Where you are, in a sense, developing other Christ-centered, reproducing disciples. It's like you're a tree and you've got all these like little trees kind of growing up that's fruitful fruit that's come from christ that's down there and now little trees are starting in your god is using you to help foster this kind of growth as i went through that path where are you are you beginning are you at the establish is, is today the day you're saying you know what I, it's time for me to serve or you know what i'm i've been serving and i want to start shaping others help multiplying where are you on the path of growing in grace so when Hendrick says okay three questions What do you want people to look like after they've been at your church for a while? You want them fully mature. Second question, well, well then what kind of church produces these kind of people? A church that has a clear path of growing in grace. And then the final question, he says, well, if that's the case, then what kind of leaders shepherd the kind of church that develop Christ-centered believers? What kind of leaders? Leaders that do it. They model this. They don't exhort people to do something that they theoretically should be doing themselves. No, a leader, by definition, if you look this up in Webster's, it's pretty simple. A leader is one who leads. That's it. A leader is one who leads. I will tell you that whoever knows what to do, why it's important, and how to bring the appropriate resources to bear, whoever does that emerges as the leader. They know what to do, why it's important, and how to bring the appropriate resources to bear. That's what a leader does. They model it, they live it, they set the example, they are multiplying themselves in the lives of others. You cannot have plan B. If you're going to be a disciple-making church and these verses are gonna be a reality, you've got to have leaders, whether they be elders, whether they be pastors, ministry directors, Youth group leaders, whatever, you've got to have leaders who model this and do it. Now, at Fellowship, I just want to talk a little bit about leadership. Uh, The elders have had a plan that we've established several years ago. We would have three elders rotate off. We have our final elder that rotated off was Shane Sanders. He came off December 31st off the elder team. Uh, We had also then brought on and trained some new elders. And here is our current elder team right here. With the exception of the guy here in the center of the end here, we've got John Gill, Brian Davis, Jason Bryant, and myself. Sharp-looking group of guys right there. And I want you to know, i got a ton of respect for these men. These are Christ-centered leaders. It's not theory. It's reality. But friends, if we're going to have a disciple-making church, we have to have lots of leaders, and praise God that we do. People that lead by example, they model it. You don't want to just feed people. You want to teach them how to fish. That's what a leader does. They multiply. John Henderson, one of my mentors, he's a missionary, and he works with establishing Christian leaders in Eastern Europe. He's spoken here on several occasions. He says this, quote, The foundation of biblical leadership is a heart devoted to God and a commitment to shepherding well. So, friends, it all comes down to leadership. As a parent, a grandparent, in your organization, in your ministry, it all comes down to leaders. Leaders shaping a church, shaping and having a vision for maturity in Christ. And this is the work of God. So, friends, it's like this. As we grow in grace, we are to build others up in truth. That is the top two priorities of a Christ-centered leader. Let's pray. Lord Thank you so much for an amazing passage of scripture. Lord, we ask this to be the reality here at Fellowship. Would you help us to grow in grace as a daily pursuit, knowing the goodness and grace of Jesus? And Lord, would we be those who continue to build into others and trusting the truth, teaching, helping people grow in every respect so they might know the fullness of maturity in Christ? And for someone who's come here today who's never trusted in Jesus, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn for myself and my sin. And right now, I believe and I trust in Christ. Be the Lord of my life. And Lord, would you have this be the ongoing reality in our church, that we would be everything we should be, both as individual believers and as a church. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.